This is Unsilent, a speak series from No Stigmas that champions mental health advocacy and challenges the stigmas that prevent people from getting the help they need. I'm Eli Lawson, a producer for the show. This week, I'll be having a conversation with Jason about his battle with orthorexia, a lesser known eating disorder. We'll hear about Jason's relationship with food, healthy eating becoming an unhealthy obsession, but we'll also get to see the power of making your mess your message. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more or contact us, visit nostigmas.org. Don't face it alone. Be unsilent. Um, so Jason, is that is that your preferred name? Are you yeah. go by? Jason. Yep. Okay. Yep, Jason. I've been called a variety of any J name, but uh, I'll take Jason. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll keep that one. Yep. Nice. Um, so just a little, to start with, a little background about you, kind of like, you know, where are you from? Um, family, what you like to do? Just... Yeah. Yeah. So I'm originally from Chicago, so a Midwest kid, and uh, moved out here to Denver uh, back in 2019 uh, with my husband Matt, and we've got uh, two pups that keep us busy. So uh, nice. that's our little that's our little immediate family here. There are two little uh, senior dogs, Arnie and Walter. So uh, there are two old men that travel everywhere with us. <laughs> but uh, uh, in our spare time, we just we love getting outdoors and exploring Colorado and hiking and climbing, and uh, you know it, it's really cool when you. When you have the opportunity to move around like we have because um, you always get to explore different different parts of the country that you didn't get to before so um, we're really loving it right now here in Denver and uh, uh, unfortunately we moved out here right before the pandemic so we didn't oh. have a chance to fully get to explore it but as things slowly start to open back up it's almost like we moved here all over again so it's it's like round two now so it's exciting oh, yeah. stuff. yeah there's a little excitement there absolutely yeah during the pandemic, were you able to keep doing your out outdoorsy activities? Yeah, luckily okay. we were we were nice. thinking about that because uh, before before we lived here, we were down in Houston for a little bit, and it's like there everything's much more indoors because it's so hot and uh you know here in colorado you have the opportunity just to get outside and uh, luckily you know we've been able to keep that up throughout the pandemic nice um and i wanted to to kind of promote plug plug the book you have coming up about the topic we're going to be addressing today um what's yeah. the what's the name of the book yeah, so uh, Starving for Survival, and uh, that's been keeping me busy. That was a, a project that, you know, I say that it's been 35 years in the making because it's it's my entire journey, but um, it starts kind of as being that kid sitting, sitting at a McDonald's eating a Happy Meal, and then it goes, you know, through the course of uh, my eating disorder journey and uh, now recovery, and it takes you right up to the point where I'm at today. Nice. So it really is just like a full, yeah, 35 years in the making, full, full right. life story. Right. Well, that's that's the one thing that I realized as I as I started my recovery and as I started writing the book was that so much of my life, so much of my childhood, things um, that I had done, the experiences that I had gone through, they molded who I was in a, in a lot of ways. They fueled the eating disorder. So um, I figured it wasn't fair to just simply talk about the years where I was battling the eating disorder. People needed to know the background story. So uh, that's why I went ahead and, you know, just shared it all through my blog I, I get to do bits and pieces of it but it was it was exciting to be able to do this book where it just puts the entire story together right yeah it's like what what led up to that right what was the battle like and how is you know kind of that three very distinct you know how how is the recovery now 
Exactly. And that, and that was one thing I really wanted with the book was that, you know, I was telling the story behind the eating disorder. Um, oftentimes I'll say that eating disorders are about a lot more than just food. And um, in my case, that's definitely true. There was there were many other factors that played a role in the development of my eating disorder. And in order to do that, I had to be able to share my entire story. I had to um, embrace the authentic me. And um, it, it, through writing it, it was actually a very therapeutic experience because mm. I was writing about experiences and times in my life that, you know, I had either pushed aside, tried to block out, or that I had completely forgotten about. And it was really cool to be able to, you know, write that story story and in a way tell myself my own story all over again right there's something calming and a little more grounding about having kind of everything that you experienced just kind of laid out like i can i can read these words and see it in front of me i've at right. least found personally that's that's helped me a lot um yeah get some clarity yeah, it's um, uh, author Stephen King. He always says, I, I learned this in college, but he always says, um, in order to be able to tell your audience the story, you must first tell yourself the story. And that's something that I do with all of my writing now, um, whether it was a project in school or now just personal for the blog or for the book. Um, I tell myself the story first. And I think I think that's the key to being able to be a successful storyteller and, and a successful writer. Mm. I'm going to keep that in mind. That's a good quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when is your when is your book becoming available? It's not out yet, right? Yeah, yeah. So it will come okay. out in January, uh, January okay. 11th. So uh, it's kind of a fun date to play around with because it's 11122. So uh, easy for me to remember. I'm trying to come up with, you know, some some sort of gimmicky promotion I can do for that. But uh, yeah, so it will come out in January. And uh, I'm really excited. I got the uh, proof copies here uh, just last week. And to actually have the physical copy in my hand was just an incredible experience opening up that box and seeing it because, like I said, this was a story 35 years in the making and uh words that came from my heart to now be in the palm of my hand on paper that was that was a pretty powerful experience right wow that is so cool <laughs> <laughs> awesome so before we begin or kind of dive into it further uh for someone who doesn't know very much about it how would you describe um orthorexia am i pronouncing that even correctly yeah. Yep. You're pronouncing that correctly. And you know, okay. that's funny because even my nutritionist and my therapist that what that I've been working with, I had to teach them how to pronounce it. They weren't even aware of the condition. So um, it's one of those that, you know, we got to get out there and talk about. But uh, to sum it up, it's basically an obsession and addiction to healthy, clean eating. Um, in my case, mm -hmm. my eating disorder was not fueled around solely body image or solely, solely calories in and calories out. It was about eating the cleanest, the healthiest possible foods. Um, oftentimes we'll see uh, fad diets become an obsession with people who are battling orthorexia. Uh, we, we have a tendency in diet culture and just in society in general to label foods as good or bad. And with orthorexia, it goes to the extremes. 
most foods eventually find their way on the bad list. And as the, as the condition continues to develop and worsen, more foods get on that bad list, fewer few foods are on the good list. And, you know, by the height of everything for me, I was eating just a handful of food every day. It was the same type of food day in, day out, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because I was following such strict food rules, because I wanted to be, you know, a healthy, clean eater. I thought I was doing the right thing by taking care of my body. But in actuality, it was slowly starting to kill me. I was going to say on the surface, that doesn't sound like something bad, just just from it's like, oh, eating healthy food. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously, as we'll get into more, it's it's a whole lot more than that. When mm -hmm. does it become unhealthy? You said you're eating just a just a handful of, of food. Yeah, yeah. So my my good list had shrunk down to the point where there was no variety in my diet anymore. Things like fruits and vegetables were starting to get cut out because if you search hard enough on the internet or follow one of these bad dieters, There's something you'll be wrong. able to Exactly. There's something wrong with everything. So you slowly start to add things. And um, I think about it, you know, it's the fall right now. It's apple season. Well, at one point, apples were on my bad list. And it's like, wait a minute, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's supposed to be like the ultimate healthy food there. Yeah. But in my mind, it had become bad because of the amount of sugars in it and the carbs in it. So it's just, you get to, you get that mentality where it's just, you can find the bad in about any food and it starts impacting every aspect of your life. Um, I think about social functions with my friends. I stopped going out with friends or I would avoid work potlucks or work events because I didn't know where the food was going to be from. I didn't know if the food was going to be on my good list. So I started, you know, hiding and I started when we'd go on vacation, I would obsessively plan. I would research restaurants. I would research menus. I would research nutritional information and it just, it became an obsession. It controlled my life. Suddenly food was consuming me. I was no longer consuming it. So that's when it crosses the line. That's when it becomes a problem is when you have such intense anxiety around food that it, it causes you to kind of withdraw from society. You start to change who you are because in my instance, my eating and my orthorexia at the time became my identity. That was who I was, was this healthy, clean eater. And I lost sight of who Jason truly is. Yeah. Who are, who are you outside of, of what you eat? Cause right. as much as the, it goes against all our stereotypes, but you are not what you eat. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And for a long time, yeah. you know, I allowed that to be my identity. I thought that if I ate something that was, you know, on the bad list, then I was a bad person. Then mm. I was a failure. I was a disappointment. And the guilt would consume me for days afterwards. And it was just, it was an endless cycle because it was the anxiety and the buildup to eating the bad food and then the guilt afterwards. And it would just continue. And it was like- Bitter loop. Yep. Yep. A very bitter loop. And it was, you know, you could never eat healthy enough. We oftentimes in general, we don't think we're enough. Well, in my case, it was the same thing. I didn't think I was eating healthy enough, which I thought made me not enough. So it was one of those where the lines were blurred. Right. And there's a very, seems like there's a pretty clear parallel to like how you're feeling versus what you're eating. Like it seems to be pretty go hand in hand. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we pretty much assign moral values to food and then we assign that to ourselves. You know, if we're eating clean and healthy that day, then I'm a great person. Give me a gold star. I'm good to go. But, it, you know, if I dig into a slice of cake or a slice of pizza, then I'm a horrible, gluttonous person and a failure and a disappointment. And yeah, it, it really That's becomes, you know, you, you lose sight of who you are. I was going to say that's that's an immense amount of pressure to have on yourself mm -hmm. all the time. Very weighty. Yeah, it was to the point where I was thinking about food 24-7. You know, I was constantly sitting there on the couch. I'd be watching an episode of one of my favorite TV shows. And in my mind, I'm calculating macros. And I'm thinking of the grocery list. And I'm thinking of what I'm going to eat three days from now. And it was just this nonstop cycle. Because I thought if I could plan it out, then maybe I could have some control over it. And mm. maybe it would finally feel like enough. The problem is that it just, you just have to keep planning and planning and planning and yeah, for your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And at one point I remember, um, uh, in 2019 when we got married and I went on my wedding diet, quote unquote, that was when orthorexia really started to take off for me. And I remember in the aftermath of the wedding, the, the day after the wedding, um, we had like a donut brunch for our friends and family that had traveled in. And, um, I couldn't allow myself to eat donuts at that event. I, I had one, but the guilt was just consuming me. It was overwhelming. And at that moment I was like, okay, this is no longer the wedding diet. This is my diet for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to follow these rules and restrictions for the rest of my life, where it was like throughout the wedding and the lead up up to that, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I get to my wedding date and I'll be good to go. I, I can go back to eating a normal, less restrictive diet. But it was that day after the wedding that it kind of dawned on me that no, this is not just a temporary thing. This is going to be permanent for the rest of my life. Mm. Wow. Your your wedding is supposed to be your your celebration. Your right. In, yeah. in most cases, food should be the last thing on your mind. Right. Right. And it was um, on my mind the entire time. And it's it's something that I kind of I detail in the book, too. But, you know, the day of my wedding, I got up and I still had my regular workout and I still ate my regular breakfast. I came up with excuses to get out of going to breakfast with friends because I wanted to be able to stay in the hotel room and eat my healthy, safe foods because I knew at the wedding itself I was going to kind of let go and, and not have that restriction. But in order to be able to approach that with a clear mind, I had to stay as strict as possible before and then immediately after. Mm, I see. Yeah. Wow. So the next question I had was, um, where does your struggle with orthorexia begin? But you mentioned, you made a good point at the beginning of the episode that um, it begins a lot earlier than than just, you know, having that, having the eating disorder itself. Um and I'm curious, where would, where would you take it back? How early? Yeah, so uh, going back to elementary school, I was picked on for being overweight. I, I grew up an overweight child, and it made me very aware of, you know, who I was, because I would walk into a room, and I was automatically labeled as the fat kid. I didn't have an opportunity to, you know, let people see my true identity, because they labeled me already. That's just kind of the way that, you know, bullies operate, and the, the way society kind of operates when we see people. And um, I, I 
became very self-conscious about who I was and how I looked. Well, in high school, I, I wanted to lose the weight. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like everybody else. So I joined Weight Watchers and um, I lost the weight. But the problem is I have an overachiever, perfectionist type of tendency or personality. And uh, in Weight Watchers, of course, it's based on points. Well, I was like, okay, if I say, you know, 10 points under what they're saying I should eat, then I'll lose the weight even faster. So at that point, that kind of unhealthy relationship, unhealthy relationship with food and unhealthy relationship with dieting kind of kicked in. Um, and Already I, in, exactly. in high school, yeah. Yep, in high school. And um, after I lost the weight, you know, the same people that were picking on me growing up were now praising me. They were like, oh my gosh, you look incredible. Great job. You, like, I'm so proud of you. Your willpower is awesome. Well, that became my crowning achievement. And I allowed that to kind of define who I was for a very long time. Um, I'm sure it happens to you, but you know, you go somewhere, you have an icebreaker question and they're like, tell me one interesting thing about yourself. Well, mine was always in high school. I lost all this weight and blah blah blah. Oh, you know, that, that's you had like your <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was my canned response, and um, I kind of I used that because I thought you know this is this is who I am. This is something I'm successful at. This is something I'm good at. Well, after high school, I lost uh, both of my parents during my teenage years. So oh. um, after high school, I went through some very dark times um, financial financially. I was evicted. I faced homelessness. Um, I've lived in rundown motel rooms. Um, I've had a falling out with my family. I fell in the drugs and alcohol. I just had a lot of a lot of rough times in my 20s. Well, during those rough times, I felt like such a disappointment, such a failure. So I kind of returned back to health or to like eating, to diet. One thing you can control. Exactly. It felt like I could control it and it felt like I was good at it. So at that point, you know, that's kind of when the restricted diet started. Well, then fast forward to uh, age 29 and my life's coming back together. I had met my husband at that point and, you know, things were on the up and up. Things were looking really good. And I had a close call with colorectal cancer. And that's the same disease that had taken my dad from me um, when I was only 11. And it really scared me. And I was like, I can't, I can't die young. I can't pass away like my dad did at a young age. I can't leave my husband behind. And um, I was like, I've got to do everything I can to prevent disease. I, I just don't, I don't want that to happen to me. And that's when the healthy, clean eating really kicked in. So it was like this disordered relationship with food had already started. And now here I was facing a disease, facing my own mortality that scared me. And I wanted to find any resources I could to, you know, prevent it. So I started you know, looking up uh, Facebook blogs or uh, internet blogs about healthy, clean eating and, you know, all of these things that you can do to prevent colon cancer. And it kind of became my Bible in a sense where I had to follow everything to a T because I didn't want colon cancer. I didn't want to die young. So, you know, I, I turned to this healthy lifestyle that I thought was going to save me. It really sounds like listening to your story, the seeds were planted early on, very young, mm -hmm. and then just watered and fertilized and nurtured all the way on. Yeah. Um, which is which is hard to hear. I'm so sorry. You had to go through that. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I look back and I'm like, I could ask myself, why did this happen to me? And I don't because it tested me. And, you know, I, I went through some really, really tough times and some really dark times. And especially with the eating disorder when it went full blown. But I came out a lot stronger. And now here I have the opportunity to be able to share my story and hopefully help other people who are going through the same things that I went through. So um, looking back, uh, I'm, I'm not even sure if I would change a thing. I, I went through a lot of battle and a lot of struggle. But if I can make some good out of it, then, you know, it's okay. Hmm. What kind of effect did, did this, did the eating disorder orthorexia start to have on your, you mentioned it a little bit um, around your wedding, but kind of in general, mm -hmm. in terms of your health um, and the people around you, kind of what was, what was the effect it had? Yeah, so as the orthorexia continued at first, um, I think it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that not a lot of people suspect men to have eating disorders. Not a lot of people suspect following a fad diet or dieting in general as being an eating disorder. It went undetected for a long time, even from like my doctor's standpoint. I would go to the doctor's office and they'd be like, oh, it's incredible. Your pulse is so low. Your blood pressure is so low. You must be like an ultra marathon runner or something, which I would take as a compliment. You know, I'd lie and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. Even though if you see me running, something's probably wrong because I, I just <laughs> don't run. So, um, um, you know, it, it kind of went undetected health-wise, especially at the beginning. Uh, and my friends and family were the same way. They would praise me. They'd be like, wow, you've got incredible willpower. You're so dedicated to getting to the gym and to eating healthy and like, way to go. Good job. Little did they know that they were applauding eating disorder behaviors because, you know, we weren't suspecting it. Nobody had even heard of orthorexia. Nobody suspected that a guy could have an eating disorder. I didn't even think I had an eating disorder because think about it. If you go out to dinner with your friends, somebody's going to be like, Ooh, I'm going to be bad tonight and have dessert, or I'm going to go off my diet and try yeah, this. You hear that all the time. Right. We've normalized that language. So I would hear that and just be like, okay, well, you know, they must be feeling the same way I'm feeling around food with this anxiety and this guilt, but it must just be something we don't talk about very much. So for a long time, it went completely undetected, even by myself. But as it started to worsen, and it was especially during the pandemic, during the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, when things really got bad, that was when my weight dropped significantly. I was cold all the time. It was one of the hottest summers we've ever had here in Denver. And I would sit in a hoodie with the heat on and it could be 100 degrees outside. Um, it hurt to sit. It hurt to get out of bed. I, while working out, I would get dizzy. I, I could work out for maybe 10 minutes and, you know, I feel like I was about to faint. Uh, it was just really starting to take a toll on me physically, mentally, I wasn't thinking right. I was becoming very aggressive, very negative. Uh, it was causing a lot of fights with me and my husband or just me and strangers in public. I would start just kind of flying off the handle at situations and, and start yelling at people over really nothing at all. But in my mind, I was just kind of snapping. So my personality was starting to change because I had such a low um, nutritional intake. And uh, it was just really starting to have some damaging effects. I, I kind of touched upon it earlier, but from a social standpoint, when we would go on vacations, there was no spontaneity anymore. Vacations were 
planned down to the minute and planned around food so that I could eat healthy and eat clean. Uh, I would withdraw from social functions with my friends. I went to a friend's birthday party one time and uh, opened up the thing of vegetables and saw that there was Parmesan cheese on them. Well, I couldn't have Parmesan cheese at that point. So I, I put the lid back on and I was like, sorry, guy, I, I got to go. I got to go home. And I went home that night and I didn't even eat dinner. Uh, and I, I left my friend's birthday party early because the fear of that Parmesan cheese chased me away. And it was just, it was starting to get to that point where I couldn't be around my friends. I couldn't really enjoy going out with my husband anymore on top of the physical and the emotional and the mental aspects of everything. So it really just started dragging me to rock bottom. If you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for support via live chat. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, please call 911. Other resources are linked in the show notes. I was going to say, yeah, that yeah, that sounds like a, a great detriment to the point where it's mm -hmm. it's not healthy anymore. Right. Even though it seems counterintuitive. Right. And that's the one thing that I've tried to make clear with my blog. And when I talk about orthorexia is that there's nothing wrong with wanting to eat a healthy, healthy diet and have a healthy lifestyle. In fact, that's kind of what my recovery has been about is finding the balance. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the keys with with healthy eating and with dieting and uh, the whole fitspiration trend that you see online and stuff is we need to make sure that people talk about boundaries and that it can go too far. You can take everything too far. We always hear the saying there can be too much of a good thing. Well, in my right. case, and in orthorexia, that's that's the truth. I'm um, I'm struck because even even at a young age, you know, kind of at the top of the episode, we jokingly was like, "You're you're not what you eat," despite mm -hmm. the. Uh, but it sounds like even at at a young age, um, that kind of was an identity that was placed on you, just as as being um. I think you said overweight. Mm -hmm. Is that a kind? Sorry, I want to be I want to be kind with my my terminology. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, that that's kind. Of, you know, that's how I am too. I got to be careful with the terminology sometimes right. too. But yeah, yeah. So um, it, I remember a conversation with uh, my sister who I had always idolized growing up and really looked up to. And my siblings are a lot older than me. I was kind of a, a late in life surprise for my parents. So oh, nice. uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I came along uh, when they weren't expecting it. So, uh, uh, but having that conversation with my sister, I was maybe 16 or 17 at the time. And she had raised attention to my weight and about how much I had eaten at dinner that night. And I think that was kind of when that label really got placed on me when I made that clear connection between what I'm eating is impacting how I look and who I am. And it was, it was kind of that conversation. And I think a lot of it had to do with just how much I loved her, how much I trusted her. And I really valued her input, especially being a young teenager and her being an older adult. Uh, but that was a conversation that really lingered in my mind for a long time because it was embarrassing uh, when she pointed out how much I had eaten at dinner that night. And then of course I wasn't happy 
happy with who I saw in the mirror or the way that people were treating me at school. So hearing those words and that conversation is when, you know, everything started to click when it was, okay, what I'm eating is causing the way that I look and is causing all of this negative attention that I'm receiving. How do I, how do I avoid that? How do mm -hmm. I go the other way? Yeah. It's, it's worse too, because, you know, it's not like it was just some random kid at school who, I mean, while hurtful, I, I, I believe that's easier to brush off. Right. It's like, this is a person who doesn't even know me, like whatever they can, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll use, I'll, I'll keep my language clean on the podcast, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's an entirely different deal when it's coming from someone you care about, someone you look up to. Yeah. That that's a lot worse. Yeah, that's when it that's when it really hurts. That's it was kind of the elephant in the room for a long time uh, with my family. They they were aware of how overweight I was and how much I was eating, but nobody had ever talked about it before. And to hear it that night was yeah, that's a conversation that will stick with me. Had some stranger off the street told me that, or even some teacher or student at school told me that, it wouldn't have landed the way that did. Wow. So you mentioned earlier, and I think we, um, I, I read about it on your blog as well when I was, when I was researching for this, um, your experience as a man with an eating disorder has been kind of wrapped up in all these, all these extra stigmas. Like there's already like the eating disorder, but then now there's, you know, being, being a man with, with that. What is, what is, um, why is that so difficult for people to understand? So we live in a society where men can't show weakness. Men have to be strong. They can't talk about their emotions. They can't talk about their feelings. And that played a major role in my eating disorder because losing my parents at a young age, I was in a lot of pain. I was going through a lot of hurt there in my late teens and my early 20s, but I hid it. I suppressed it because I wanted to appear like the strong guy. And I think had I been able to have an outlet and get that emotion out, maybe the eating disorder wouldn't have developed. Maybe a lot of those feelings that I was battling back then would have been able to be addressed rather than kind of linger until it got to the point where my life was at risk. And uh, we have that factor as men that it's just, you know, there's that stigma when it comes to talking about mental health. Well, then throw on the fact that growing up, we learn about eating disorders in school, but it's usually young females that we see, and they're usually battling anorexia or bulimia. We never really talk about men having an eating disorder. We never look into orthorexia or muscle dysmorphia, where guys are spending all their time at the gym and just bulking up on protein and steroids and all of that stuff. But those are all forms of eating disorders. They're just not talked about very often. So one, people aren't looking for them. Like I mentioned earlier, my medical professionals weren't looking for signs of an eating disorder in me because I didn't fit the stereotype. Um, and it just kind of, it allowed to just develop over time and keep getting worse and worse, but I wasn't ready to talk about it to anybody because of the stigma that exists. I had to appear tough and strong. So I didn't talk about the anxiety I was having around food. I didn't talk about the immense guilt I was having after that fight. And I think that there's a lot of guys out there who are feeling the same way. They're battling in silence because we've 
grown accustomed to social norms for so long with the stigmas and stereotypes around mental health and eating disorders. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can say even just in my personal life, like when I think eating disorder, my mind does go to women. Mm -hmm. Um, but as you said, and I've noticed this in my own mental health battles as well, um, there is, there's certainly that, you know, men got to be strong, tough, no feelings, yeah, no, none of that. And I can imagine, um, particularly when it comes to mental health, what's mm -hmm. so important is being open about that and, and telling your story because that's, you know, kind of what shines the light into something dark. Exactly, exactly. And that's how we can confront the stigmas and stereotypes that exist is by sharing our own experiences, sharing our stories. And um, uh, a quick story that I've got back from second grade. And this just shows kind of how we beat it into men at a young age to be tough and strong. I was stung by a bee on the uh, elementary school playground during recess. And Ouch. it hurt. Yeah, it really yeah, hurt. It's a bee sting. Um, it hurts. <laughs> exactly. Everybody can relate to that. I I think. And um, I, I didn't tell anybody. I kept it a secret. I sat at my desk all day, writhing in pain, holding on to my finger as it was swelling. But I didn't want to tell my teachers. I didn't want to tell anybody that it had happened because I didn't want to appear weak. I didn't want to be the girly boy. I didn't want to be made fun of any more than I already was for my weight. So I kept it quiet and I sat there in pain for the rest of the afternoon until I got home. And once I got home, my mom saw what was going on with my hand and uh, pulled the stinger out. The stinger had been in there all afternoon. And finally, there was that relief going on. Well, I look at that incident in my life and I can apply that to my entire life because I held on to pain for so long until it got to the point where I couldn't handle it anymore. And as soon as I spoke up about it, the relief started coming in. And I think that's just, that's one thing that a lot of guys deal with. We, we hold it in, we hold it in, we hold it in for so long until it gets unbearable. And then once it finally gets out, that's when the relief can finally start to set in. Right. Yeah. And even, you know, as a second grader who just got stung by a bee, I think most would agree that's a perfectly reasonable time to right. talk about pain. Yeah. Yeah. But in my mind, that's not what boys did. So I, I had to stay quiet. Right. Um, you mentioned earlier about having to educate, um, kind of educate the people who are your, your caregivers, really your doctors, therapists, uh, or psych psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's synonymous. Um, anyway, <laughs> you had to you had to tell those people what what orthorexia was. And even in my own research, it's it's hard to to find information about it. Um, what do you what do you think makes it so so difficult to to find information yeah. on? Yeah, so now we're getting to the meat and potatoes of everything because <laughs> that's exactly how I felt. I was diagnosed um, in in July of 2020. And when my doctor diagnosed me with my eating disorder, it was diagnosed as an unspecified eating disorder. In the chart at the office, he actually had to put 
eating disorder other slash bulimia, which I thought was very weird terminology because I had never binged, I had never purged. So why was there right. even bulimia it's mentioned like on my else. medical chart? Yeah. Exactly. And to me, it kind of sounded made up. It sounded like when you select other on an exam or something, it just didn't really land. So for a long time, I thought, okay, I'm not battling an eating disorder. Maybe I have an unhealthy relationship with food, but the doctor can't even come up with a real label for my eating disorder. So it can't be that so serious. Who's to say, yeah, yeah. Who's to say someone's wrong. Exactly. And um, it it caused me to feel like maybe I wasn't worthy of help. Maybe I wasn't sick enough. Uh, and then it didn't help that once I got home and started looking online for resources, every single eating disorder resource out there was, of course, catered towards women again and towards anorexia and bulimia. There is nothing in regards to what I was facing with this addiction to healthy, clean eating. So it wasn't until three or four months into recovery that I'm sitting in my dining room one morning reading a book on eating disorders. And I, it was kind of the approach I took to my recovery. I took a very academic approach to my recovery. I wanted to, to learn as much from the experts on it as well as previous people or people who had gone through eating disorders themselves. And it was while I was reading this book that I stumbled across the term orthorexia. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what orthorexia is. So I pulled out my phone, I Googled it really quick, and it popped up, this mm. unhealthy addiction, obsession with healthy, clean eating. And it was a light bulb moment, you know, it was probably 6am in the morning, but I was ready to like dance on the table because it was just, it was so powerful to realize that what I was facing was in fact an eating disorder and that it had a name, that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't just some right. weird guy with some weird relationship with food, that this was actually a serious situation. And that was the turning point in my recovery because it was then that I realized I do need help. I am worthy of help. What I'm facing is very serious. And that's also the moment when I realized I needed to start getting out there and share my own story because one, there's not a lot of guys with eating disorders that are talking about them. Two, there's not a lot of individuals with orthorexia who are out there talking about it. So uh, my husband woke up later that morning and I was like, do you know what orthorexia is? Do you know what it is? And of course he'd never heard huh? of it. Yeah. So then I explained it to him. I go to my therapist appointment the next week. I'm like, do you know what orthorexia is? He'd never heard of it. So I explained it to him. My new nutritionist, the same thing and so on. And it's these conversations that I, I continue to have on a regular basis where people will look at me and one, they ask, how do you pronounce that? And two, they Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. And two, they don't know what it is. And it's just, it's something that I think is a lot more prevalent in our society, but it's just, we don't realize it's that serious of a problem yet. We're not, because we're not talking about it. There's not a lot of people out there yet that are standing up and saying, you know, orthorexia is a serious serious problem for a lot of people i can only imagine how much how much validation and and just like the first step and like oh my gosh like you know right. this is something this is real yeah it was like i was fighting an invisible enemy for those first three or four months of recovery i didn't know what i was battling and then as soon as orthorexia as soon as i knew its identity i was like all right i'm ready to give it all i've got right i know what this is now beat your enemy you must know your enemy <laughs> like exactly. that type of deal. <laughs> yeah 
Nice. And, um, and what's interesting is it's actually a term that was coined back in the mid 90s. So it's been around for a while, the term orthorexia, but it's just it's one of those that it's not formally recognized yet as um, by the DSM for uh, diagnostic criteria. And the main reason is because it's such a broad definition that they're still they're trying to define, you know, the criteria for diagnosis around it. Because I'll often say that orthorexia is kind of like a spectrum. I think a lot of people will have, you know, slight behaviors and tendencies that are orthorexic, especially when it comes to fad dieting and inspiration and stuff like that. Then there's individuals like me who take it to the extremes and it becomes life-threatening. But I think there's just such a wide range right now that that's why we don't have a formal diagnosis yet for it. Got it. Yeah. I noticed that once, once again, I'm sorry, I keep referencing because I did a lot of digging to, you know, to prepare for this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I notice like they really there doesn't seem to be any concrete knowledge of of what is what exactly causes it, mm -hmm. how to treat it, really anything. Um, one a couple articles I I found potentially like speculated about possibly linking it to some form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. um, did you was that addressed on your work or something you've thought about? Yeah, so there's um, actually a, a page on my blog where I kind of talk about that too, because I, at the same time that I was diagnosed with my unspecified eating disorder, I was diagnosed with OCD. And this okay. was something that I had been displaying for quite a while. It was something that, you know, looking back, I regret it because looking back, I would joke about it a lot. I would say, oh, I'm so OCD about this, or I'm so OCD about that. When in actuality, I was battling OCD and it's a very serious condition. And it's one that, yeah, I think there's a there's a very, very good or very strong relationship between OCD and orthorexia, because it's about setting these rigid routines and these rules and and following everything and the need to be clean and to be pure, because it was one of those things that if I ate something that was on my bad list, I felt filthy, I felt disgusting, I felt dirty. So it was that constant need for cleanliness. And that's oftentimes seen with OCD as well. So there, I think there's a very strong correlation between the two. Okay. Yeah, I found I am luckily much more familiar with OCD. I actually did a report on it um, for college. Mm -hmm. um, and it matches up to, you know, just kind of what I learned about like like the obsession or some like a stressor and then having to take action or do the compulsion to right. like relieve it it makes it makes sense in those terms yeah because yeah, in, in my situation i think that the most clear evidence there is with the scare with colon colorectal cancer it was that stressor that scare that you all of these obsessions that I started to have around food and this healthy, clean eating. And I feared that just one deviation from the rules would ruin everything. It would contaminate me and just destroy my life. This sounds trick so tricky because it's it's wrapped up in like good intentions at the same time, mm -hmm. right? Because because wanting to lead a healthier lifestyle and not get cancer, nobody's going to tell you that that's... <laughs> That's right. wrong. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, it, it, it's uh, one of those things that the quote that I started saying when I first launched the blog was, I was literally killing myself to live longer. 
that is the situation I was in. Because in my mind, I thought I was doing the things I could for longevity. In actuality, according to my doctors and my nutritionist, I was weeks, months away from a sudden cardiac event. My body was starting to shut down. But in my mind, I was still thinking I was the perfect picture of health. And so were the people around me because I was so committed to this healthy lifestyle. Right. Yeah, we have to be careful with, and and not just, I mean, people who are, um, who, who don't struggle with eating disorders have to be careful with like, in a, in a I'm going to try to phrase this, sorry. <laughs> someone avidly pursuing health, you know, we got to check in with them and, and like, you know, what, what are your intentions? How are you, how are you going about this? How are you feeling? Um, because not even, and not even just in the case of orthorexia, but in many other cases, it can be something that is not being driven by good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a question we need to ask a lot is why in the, in the diet world and the fitness world, why, why do you want to do this? Why, why are you, you know, why do you want to sign up with a personal trainer? In my instance, I had a personal trainer for a long time, but it was for, you know, looks and appearances, the aesthetics. Now, when I go to the gym and I work out, I'm doing it for performance. And that's one of the shifts in recovery is that it's no longer about aesthetics. It's about, I want to be able to climb better. I want to be able to hike better, play tennis better, do the things that I enjoy to do. That's why I work out now. But before I used to work out for aesthetics or I used to work out because I was feeling guilty about what I had already ate or I was worried about what was coming up next for the next meal. So um, it's all of those things. And I think that's why it's so important to educate people that work in the fitness and health worlds because they need to ask those questions. They need to make sure that there's boundaries in place and that people know things can go too far and they need to make sure that the intentions are right. I'm curious in your story, what was the turning point that led to your recovery? Like what can you narrow it down to an event or moment? Yeah. So I, I call it the PETA incident. Um, we had gone on a short little trip out of town. Of course, with the pandemic going on, there wasn't much of an opportunity to really get away. So we wanted to go up to Cheyenne, Wyoming for just, just over the 4th of July weekend, figured we could just get away and relax for a couple of days. Well, relaxation is very hard for me when it comes to vacations and the eating disorder because I do so much pre-planning and preparation because I was deviating from my regular everyday routines. While we were up in Wyoming, uh, most of the restaurants were closed either because of the pandemic going on or because of the 4th of July holiday. So my initial plans kind of got sidetracked and we had to find new restaurants to eat at. Well, I identified a restaurant in downtown Cheyenne and we got there and I ordered the hummus platter. And rather than have the pita bread, I had asked to substitute for fresh vegetables, which is something that I would do quite often because of course, at that point, carbohydrates were the devil and pita bread, you know, I could not have that on my plate. Well, the waiter was not able to accommodate that request. They didn't have any fresh vegetables they could include. 
I went into a tailspin. I got emotional. I got angry. I just wanted to go home. I looked at my husband and was like, I'm done with this trip. I'm, I'm just done. I want out of here. I want out of this restaurant. And it was in that moment that he raised his concerns. He kind of, he took a deep breath and then he expressed his concerns about how restricted my diet had become and the eating habits that he had seen and the negativity he had seen in my personality. He remarked about how I had always been such a positive, upbeat person before, but suddenly in the last year or so, I was turning especially kind of negative and aggressive. And um, he also expressed uh, his worry that it could have something to do with losing my parents at a young age and the turmoil that I went through in my late teens and early 20s. And it was in that moment that it dawned on me. I think it was hearing back, kind of like we were talking about earlier with the conversation with my sister when I equated the way that I looked with food. It was in that moment hearing it from somebody that I loved and somebody that I trusted, that they were deeply concerned about me and that they saw these issues that I had been battling kind of silently for so long. Uh, that it was that turning point. It was that moment that I was like, I don't want to live like this anymore. I, I can't continue to follow these strict rules. I don't want to be this negative person. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to be cold all the time and hurt all the time. And uh, it was that night at that little restaurant in Cheyenne eating hummus and pita that it, it kind of, you know, got me, got me started on my road to recovery. It's amazing hearing about the seemingly smallest, smallest events that have such a great impact on someone's trajectory and just, it was just pita and hummus. <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's beautiful. Right. Right. So now it's, it's kind of funny. Every time I eat pita or have oh hummus God. or anything, I, I, kinda, <laughs> I laugh a little bit because it's like, that was, that was the turning point. And I'm so, so grateful that he, he expressed his concerns because I can tell it was a very hard conversation to have. And it's something that we've talked about since. And he said, you know, he almost responded completely different rather than try to comfort and console me. He almost, you know, got aggressive back because sometimes that's what people do in those types of situations when a loved one is acting out in getting upset but instead he acted from a calm place and uh, expressed concerns and you know it, it i listened and uh, the rest is kind of history that is that is awesome that takes that takes yeah. courage both to to have that conversation um but also to be receptive of it and to mm -hmm. be like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna see what i can do yeah Yep, it was in that moment that I realized I didn't have to live like this anymore and that there was help for me, even if I didn't really understand what I was battling. At that point, orthorexia wasn't on the radar. Really, at that point, even the thought of maybe an eating disorder wasn't on the radar. It, to me, it was just kind of an unhealthy relationship with food. What I really wanted to get addressed was this kind of unresolved pain that I had held on to since I was a teenager. And um, it was through those conversations that I was able to start healing. That's awesome. It sounds like you went from, you know, having to conform with kind of the male man stereotype of, you know, be tough, don't talk about feelings. And there was a shift to, I'm going to open up about this. I'm going to write a book about it. I'm going to be, I'm going to tell everything. How did you, how did this experience help you grow into advocacy and being willing to share those things? Yeah, so it started uh, last year, of course, when I realized that I was battling orthorexia, and I knew that there weren't a lot of other guys out there who were talking about their own experiences with eating disorders. 
And I wanted to change that. And writing has always been something that I've been passionate about. It's always been kind of that outlet for me. So it was something that I wanted to, to do. So initially, the kind of idea of a blog popped into my mind. Well, while watching Robin Roberts masterclass last winter, she talked about how her experiences, she's made her mess her message. And to me, that was something that really resonated, that I could take the mess that I had been through my life up into that point and make it my message and do good moving forward. And that was kind of that catalyst. That was like, okay, I'm, I'm launching this blog. I'm going to do this and I'm going to get out there. I don't know who I'm going to share my story with, but I'm just going to share it with everybody and hope that it resonates. Hope that just one little part of my story can maybe help somebody else who's going through their own battles. And I took a lot of comfort in reading other people's memoirs and other people's journeys and experiences with eating disorders. And I realized that it was my time to kind of pay it forward and uh, get my story out there and try to help other people the same way that previous storytellers had helped me get through some of my toughest days in recovery. Wow, that's incredible. And almost, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, worst case scenario, it's still therapeutic for you, right? Like what could, what could be, be bad about that? There's nothing that could go wrong. Right. Right. It, it, there was an assignment when I was working with my, well, I'm still working with my therapist, but uh, there was an assignment last year where he had asked me to write my story out. I was very concerned about sharing it with my friends and the people who were closest to me because I thought they would see me as a fraud. How could I be going through an eating disorder for years and holding back all this kind of pain and, and turmoil that I was going through? So I was very concerned about the way that they would respond when I opened up to them about everything that was going on in my life. And he said, write your story out. Maybe that will help you be able to tell it better and share it better. Well, I wrote my story out. And then just like I mentioned earlier on with Stephen King, I read it back to myself and I told myself my own story. And it was from that third party point of view, that objective point of view, that I gained self-compassion, self-love. I was able to forgive myself for the things that I had gone through because I realized that this person in the story was simply doing the best that he could the whole time and that he was enough. And, you know, I was cheering for him and I wanted him to get better. And then I realized that person's me. And that's kind of when it all started clicking. So it was in the power of being able to write my own story that, or it was through writing my own story that I discovered the power in storytelling. And that's why the book, it was a no brainer at that point. I was like, I've got to do this because if just this little four page document can have such a profound impact on me, I can only imagine what a 200 page document would right. have. Yeah. It's, I think we mentioned it at the top, top of the uh, conversation, but it's, crazy the the effect that writing or not not crazy sorry that's not the word i want to use it's it's fascinating the effect um that writing has just in helping us process just kind of see things as they are and mm -hmm. as you were able to find like i can empathize for this person that i'm reading about oh my gosh that's me <laughs> right yeah it's a it's, profound yeah, realization it's a pretty and a major yeah. step into, into recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And, you know, it could sound selfish for some people to be like, oh, look at this guy reading his own story and blah, blah, blah. But no, it is an extremely just therapeutic experience. And I try to write every day. I keep a little recovery nice. journal with me. And whether that just be a couple quotes that I come across or something that I read in the book that I want to write down or what's on my mind that day. I just I put a couple notes in my recovery journal. And to me, it's powerful writing it, but it's almost even more powerful when I go back and read it later on. Uh, just two days ago, I, I was sitting there kind of flipping through the pages and looking back at things I wrote over the summer and over the spring. And those things, it really helped put everything in perspective and just really helped with the kind of mindfulness and keeping me on that road to recovery. Right. It's like, look at how much I've grown. Look at where, where I've, what I've been through. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Kind of the, the last question I have on the on the dock today is um how can how can people like you and I and just everyday people help others who are struggling with with similar things I think first and foremost we have to embrace our authentic selves and embrace vulnerability and not be not be afraid to share share our stories and share our experiences share our insecurities and our self doubts and just let it all out there and that will help kind of shift that conversation because we need to confront the stigmas we need to confront the stereotypes and i think in order to do that we have we have a responsibility uh, to get out there and to share our own stories and to share our lived experiences. It's one thing to read about something in a textbook or just to you just read text in general on a website, but to actually have a story behind it and a lived experience, that's the most powerful tool. And I think that can do a lot of good because I know it did for me. Early on in my recovery, it was through reading other people's experiences and through reading their stories that I realized I wasn't so alone and that I had a voice and I needed to share mine too. Couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> That's amazing. Embracing vulnerability, sharing our stories. That is, that is the opening. That's what opens up the path to recovery. Right. Yeah. It's our superpower. That's what yeah. I say is that storytelling is our superpower. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't need time travel or telekinesis or any of that. I, I've got storytelling. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for, for taking the time um, and having the patience <laughs> through the interview <laughs> amidst the, yeah. the technical difficulties. Thank you for, for being so bold about sharing your story. Um. And I'm, I'm already so excited for the, for the people it'll reach and, and how it'll help them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for the opportunity. I say every time I have the opportunity to share my own experiences, it's therapeutic for right. me. It's, it, this is, this is a powerful moment for me. And uh, best of all, I hope that there are people out there who, who needed to hear this and can take away bits and pieces of my story and hopefully realize that that they're not alone in their battles and that they, they just like me, they're enough and they're worthy of help. Absolutely. And men, come on. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, no need to be yeah, the you tough guy. You don't have guy. to man up. Yeah. You can speak up. Yeah. 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 Speak up. Don't man up. <laughs> like... right, right. This is Unsilent. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was hosted and produced by me, Eli Lawson, Lance Bordalone, John Panacucci, and the rest of the incredible No Stigmas marketing team. Special thanks to Jason for sharing his story this week and providing insight into a topic that many may not know much about. To go beyond the show, 
Connect with us on social media or visit nostigmas.org to learn more about mental health topics. Please leave us a five-star review and share with others wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. New episodes of Unsilent come out every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Finally, remember that whatever you're going through, you don't have to do it alone. Be Unsilent. We'll see you next week.